On today's Pats podcast, we are heating things up so you can stay cool this preseason. Stick around. Let's be better athletic trainers. Today's episode is sponsored by Rothman Orthopedics. For more information, please visit them at www.rothmanortho.com. Today's guest is Dr. Becca Stearns. Uh, Dr. Stearns comes from us from the Corey Stringert Institute. And uh, Rebecca, I just want to thank you for coming on today's show. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Um, I know we go way back to Duquesne, but uh, let's, uh, let's hear what you've been doing. Yeah, so thank you for having me on the show. It's great to, to be here and also just um, be doing this with you, Phil. Since we do go back to our undergrad days, it's very exciting to both be where we are and be um, combining our interests right now. So, so thank you. Yeah. So yeah, so um, uh, I mean, originally I'm from New York, right? And I, I did my undergrad at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh in athletic training. And then I moved out to Connecticut to pursue my master's degree in athletic training at uh, the University of Connecticut and um, didn't plan on staying there as long as I did, but I ended up staying there for uh, my PhD and then a postdoc. And um, I am now employed full-time at the Corey Stringer Institute, which is a nonprofit that's housed within the kinesiology department there. Okay. Now, my, um, my background with uh, KSI was uh, when they did the NCCSR um, on brain injuries and um, that was back when I was doing a lot of research with hockey and spineboarding and um, kind of the, the, the treatment of uh, pre-hospital care with spinal cord injuries. And that's kind of where we reconnected. Um, now, I know KSI does a whole lot more than just that. Yeah, so, so the mission of the Corey Stringer Institute uh, is uh, to prevent uh, sudden death and enhance health and safety for the athlete, warfighter, and laborer. And so we address all three of those core cohorts and we address that from a spectrum of not only preventing sudden death, but also enhancing the health and safety and performance of, of those individuals. And so um, if you're not familiar with the Corey Stringer Institute, we were really born out of um, our namesake, Corey Stringer, right? He was a Minnesota Vikings player who died back in 2001 from an exertional heat stroke um, playing for the, uh, for the Minnesota Vikings. Um, this year actually just recently marked the 20 year anniversary of his passing, um, which was uh, pretty monumental and uh, made us all really reflect on, on where we've come since then. And um, we started back in 2010 as an official organization um, with that mission to help prevent future instances of catastrophic injury. And so um, we have a few different branches and wings and, and focuses because of the different um, cohorts that we focus on. And so um, maybe I can just tell you about the few, a few of the major programs that we have going on. Yeah, let's hear about them. Okay. So the one you referred to um, the, is NCCSIR. It's a mouthful, but it stands for the National Center for Catastrophic Sport Injury Research. The headquarters is actually housed out of the University of North Carolina, um, where it started decades and decades ago. But um, recently what they've done is uh, they've formed a consortium with different branches, and we house the... Uh, exertional branch at the University of Connecticut. So we handle all of the exertional cases of catastrophic injury that happen in sport. And um, that does not include cardiac because that is a wing of its own. But um, really, essentially, it is a tracking database to help um, essentially understand the epidemiolo epidemiology of catastrophic injury in sport. Um, so if you've heard any statistics on 
how many injuries are happening each year, how many deaths have occurred for specific injuries or diseases, it's probably coming out of that organization. And so that's really uh, a really important one because that really creates the groundwork and the understanding of where we stand related to catastrophic injury and kind of if there's an impact, if the trends are changing and what's kind of happening in the realm of sport for catastrophic injury. And then another one is called ATLAS and that stands for Athletic Training Locations and Services. And this is an initiative that we had with uh, and we took up with the NATA for. And essentially what it does is it tracks and monitors the access that all high schools have to athletic training services across the country. So every single high school in the country is mapped. Um, it's open access information available on our website. And it's been really valuable because not only do we know what access athletes have to athletic training services and what degree that is, but we also survey all the athletic trainers at those high schools to get a sense of what policies they're implementing, what safety equipment they have and resources they have at their disposal. It's been really valuable information, again, for not only enhancing and progressing the athletic training profession, but also knowing where we need to put our resources in order to enhance health and safety for the athlete. Okay. And then I'll mention two others real quick. We have a lot, but I'm just going to give you the highlights. Um, so Innovate is our newest program. And this is a program that is aimed at providing grants to high schools or districts in typically underserved areas that have not had athletic training services in the past. And so it's a three-year grant that's provided to them along with additional resources um, in, and tools to help them succeed in, in terms of turning that over into a long-term um, established position for an athletic trainer. And so we, um, we have identified and helped um, to provide community support and identify um, local NFL uh, legend voices to help promote and also um, support that program. So we just announced our first cohort this year, but we still have two more years of funding. So um, we are going to have application next spring again for another round and then the year after as well. So that is our program that's actively trying to um, influx athletic training services into um, underserved mm -hmm. high schools. And that's uh, across nationwide, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. That's awesome. And then uh, Tufts is, is the one that's near and dear to my heart because of that. that is the one that I am largely responsible for and uh, work on on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and it stands for Team Up for Sports Safety. And this is a program that um, started a couple years ago, a few years ago now. And um, it was an initiative that was largely supported by the NFL and also um, the NATA. And um, the goal of Tufts is to propel policy adoption at the high school level, specifically related to best practices for preventing sudden death in sports. So, um, so that I, I know we'll probably get into more details and I could talk a lot about it, but that is, those are kind of the, the large scale main um, programs that we run in addition. And I'll just say quickly, to um, the original research that we also do in our laboratory. So in addition to all of these programs, we also are doing original research in our lab. Um, a lot of it is, is related to private companies, but then also uh, military research to help enhance our understanding of um, the human body and physiology. And again, enhancing health and safety for the athlete, warfighter and laborer. No, I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, you know, that's a, an, an underserved population for sure, especially in this this realm. I, I feel like I, I've never really heard many people um, speak to research on, on that type of, of, of athlete. 
Um, I, I'd like to go back up to the the N the NCCSIR. I think I got mm -hmm. all the all the letters in there. Um, could you just maybe talk a little bit about what type of data you're collecting there? Um, you know, you talked about like if there was a, a exertional heat illness um, or death that you guys were kind of looking at it, but like what are you actually looking at and what are you trying to get from that that data? Yeah, so I love that you asked this question because we get to talk more about this data set, which I love. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, so. Essentially, um, if you go to sportinjuryreport.org, it's a website that allows anyone to report a catastrophic injury. And again, this this database is really housing injuries anywhere from the youth level all the way up to the professional level athletes. And so it's really important not only to capture um, the tragic deaths and, and fatal injuries that are out there, but also the survivals. Um, because in order to understand and fully um, capture what is being successful for the survivals and also what is leading to deaths of athletes we need to capture both of those realms and so right. anyone can anyone can report an injury and so we always encourage either the athlete themselves the family whoever's closest to that individual to report it um, and then we also go through media reports a lot of those items hit the media a lot so so we'll go through media reports and capture those and we collect as much information as we can so we will we will reach out and try to get surveys and, and information from the individuals closest to the incident. And then um, again, we, we compile this information, put it into the huge database, analyze it, and then and then look at it. And you know, there's been a ton of really impactful policy changes that we've seen. Um, I think the one of the largest and initial ones we've seen is just the head injury and neck cervical spine changes. Um, and we've seen a lot of rule changes that happened through the 70s um, for tackling. And that was in large because of the cervical spine and head injuries we were seeing, right? And then because of those rule changes, we've seen a dramatic decrease. So we've seen the impact of policy change on the, the injuries that are being reported to that database. Great, so, so basically anybody can report it or you guys are actively looking for them and then you're just basically like little CSI folks and, and gathering all the information and then just trying to, to come up with with better policy right and i love i love that you said that yeah like right okay if we have somebody who did end in death versus somebody who didn't well what were the differences you know right and being able to identify that to, to lead to those policy changes um seems seems like a no-brainer but you know whenever i would originally thought of that i wouldn't have thought of looking at both right so i, I think that's that's very good yeah, exactly. You hit it right on the nose. And it's all dependent on, on the data that we get. So the more data that we have, the more incidents, the stronger and the better we're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, I remember last time we were talking, you use um, a lot of that information to kind of reach out to or help with other states to kind of help set the policies and get I don't want to say and get uh, registration, licensure, certification level stuff, but a lot of the state organizations will utilize this information plus some of your um, your your other um, kind of research to help um, set these policies. Yeah. So yeah, how so many states have you guys helped out? <laughs> that's a big question. Um, so that's kind of a mix of our Atlas database where we house all the information on athletic training services for high schools and Tufts, which is also a high school, secondary school level um, focused initiative, right? Um, we talk a lot about high schools mostly because um, it's one of the largest 
cohorts of athletes, right? We have over 8 million high school athletes participating in sports. Um, and they are probably one of the lower resourced cohorts, right? So mm -hmm. from our Atlas database, we know that um, just over 60% have access to athletic training services, which mean um, there's still over 30% of schools that have no athletic training services, um, but they're still running sports programs. So some of the some of the data that we have and the information that we've used is um, uh, has a, has allowed us to identify the gaps um, such as athletic training services, but then also policies from the state level. So um, then I'll get to your question. I, I swear I'm going to answer it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, in terms of uh, policies for high school athletes um, and policies that we know are effective at reducing catastrophic injury. Are the, are the ones that have been published and really researched and established by our best practice documents and the NATA position statements. And so what we've done is we've, we've taken those uh, best practices and essentially created a guideline for what should be in place for states and it, to really maximize and, and decrease the likelihood of a catastrophic injury. And so that we did that back in 2017. Um, and um, the Preventing Sudden Death in Sport document came out in 2013, and that was really like our basis for this, for this project. And so in 2017, we kind of identified that roadmap forward for, for the states. And again, policy is dictated for the high school level at the state, at the state level. So state high school athletic associations are, are really who we're trying to collaborate with. And, um, and then through the Tufts program, we gained and, and raised enough funds so that we could go to every single state and host meetings where we would meet with all these stakeholders, um, meaning most most of the time it's the State High School Athletic Association, the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee who advises them, and then also all the, the medical providers that would be relevant, right, like team physicians, athletic trainers, um, EMS, and then um, again, any other stakeholders that would be involved, maybe it's the principals association, the coaches, um, athletic directors who are in charge of making a lot of these decisions. So we have a full day meeting with all of these stakeholders. We provide all of the funding and support to make that happen. Um, so there's, there's essentially a day that we can have just focused around a discussion on you know, improving health and safety for athletes. Um, and there's, there's no limitations for anyone being able to make it to that meeting. And then we talk specifically about policies that have been proven to reduce catastrophic injuries. So at this point, we've been doing that since 2017. And we've been on site at 19 states. And okay. uh, we did five virtual states during the, the COVID times when, when travel was not feasible. Um, but we still are planning you know, out for the next 18 to 24 months um, for, for all the other ones that we're still hope, you know, planning on getting to. Yeah. And so, um, so we're really looking forward to that. The amazing thing is now that we're three years out, we've seen some impact and some changes from the initial states that we went to. And what they've been able to accomplish in the last three years, which has been so rewarding. And it's a and it's a slow process. I mean, legislation and enactment of policies does take some time, and that's cool. That's um, I say only three years, but you know, three years is not that long in in terms of government. So, yeah, I, I think that's some positive outcomes right there. Yeah. So um, we will have. I'll, I'll tease this. We have a we have an update that's coming out. Um, we do publish all of the information on our website, so anybody can look at it at any time. But over the last three years, we've seen an overall increase in about uh, in in the states of about six six percent, um, and that doesn't sound like a lot. When, but when you're talking fifty states and you're talking um, a list of um, 
policy changes and in, in all of these items that can go into place. Like 6% is actually pretty massive. Um, and we've seen over 75% of the states that have made changes in the last three years related related to these specific topics. Yeah. So, so Dr. Stearns, you, you mentioned the preventing catastrophic death um, document from 2007. Is that an NATA document or is that a, a Corey Stringer Institute document? Yeah, so the 2013 document is um, an NATA um, Interassociation Task Force. Okay, right? okay, um, yep, yep, yep. Okay, yep. so that's so the one you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Just, just to clarify. Um, sure. And then and then you said, you mentioned the 6%. What what is What was that number? Six. You said you saw an increase in 6%? Yeah, so overall, the, the mean increase, um, the mean change and in, in improvement in catastrophic policies at the state level has been about 6%. Okay, so an increase in yeah. 6%. Okay, mm-hmm. um, great. So, you know, I think we, we, we brought you on, right, to, to talk about the policy changes. So, you know, what, what are some of these policy changes that you're talking about, right? Like, what, what are, you know, and maybe we're doing great in Pennsylvania, but, you know, pretend like, you know, this is just some somebody that doesn't know anything and, and tell us a little bit about like what what should be out there for high school kids um you know to, to make sure that they're safe yeah so i love that um pennsylvania is awesome in terms of athletic training services i can tell you that much <laughs> you guys are great um but so the checklist and kind of what we go through um there's five main areas that we look at um when we're looking at state policies and there's multiple policies within each one but when we're looking at um state policies we're looking at um cardiac related issues. So any policies related to cardiac arrest, heat stroke, and then head and neck injuries. And then on top of those, those are three areas. We also look at athletic training services and access to athletic trainers, and then um, uh, emergency planning. So essentially emergency action planning. Mm -hmm. And so those are kind of the five main buckets that we're looking in. Um, And of course, um, within each one of those, there's additional policies. So um, essentially within the emergency action bucket, we're looking to make sure that it has all the, the 14 components that are recommended by the, the NATA position statement, right? Um, within the cardiac arrest one, we're looking to see if there are, um, is a policy related to having F, um, AEDs on site, if coaches are required to have um, CPR and first aid training, um, if, uh, if the AEDs are with one, within one to three minutes of every venue, because of course, the faster you can get an AED on someone, the, the increased likelihood that they're going to survive. Absolutely. Um, with heat stroke, we're looking to see, do they have an, an immersion tub? Do they have policies related to heat acclimatization and extreme weather modifications? So it's kind of a little bit of a, a glimpse and a gamut of the, what we're, what we're discussing and what we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. So, you know, it, y- y'all do everything, right? So you're, you're, you're looking at, okay, this is what happened. Well, how can we change that? Here, here are the policies that we need to put into place. Here are the people, aka the athletic trainers, that we need to put into place to implement the policies that we put into place. And then, you know, it just seems like this whole full circle of, of you know, trying to to help high school athletes. Well, every all athletes in general, but really, you know, focusing in on that high school athlete. So, the work y'all are doing is 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 phenomenal. This this is very 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 important, especially you know to athletic trainers who are on the front lines trying to institute this stuff. Um, you know, so thank you for, for being a part of that. Um, any, any specifics you want to get into on, on anything that you feel like would be, would be valuable for our listeners? Um, you know, on, on any of those topics that you, you kind of went over first, like the cardiac arrest, the heat stroke or the head or neck injuries. I mean, it really, it honestly depends on the state. 
Um, and so I think the biggest things, and thank you for your um, incredibly generous compliments there. So thank you very much for that. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that makes KSI really unique, right? We do run the gamut of, you know, doing the, the uh, research and then publishing it and then advocating for it and, and helping to provide the support necessary to implement all of these things. Um, so I think that, again, is, is really unique. And I love being able to span that spectrum that we're doing. But um, I think one of the things that is most important um, with Tufts and, and trying to get policy adoption for, for high school athletes um, is, is two main things. Um, and one is that I think we're I think we're truly advocating for the athletic trainer when we do a lot of this work. And, and it's kind of like an indirect way. But honestly, if if we have these policies that are being implemented at the state level and they're being mandated, then not only do we know that um, we're providing adequate and equal care to all the high school athletes, regardless of access to athletic training services, um, but but we're also removing that conversation that the athletic trainers have to have with their administration about what they need to have in place, right? It's just matter of fact, look, look, this is best practice, this is state policy, and so this is what we need to follow today. And so I feel like we're, we're taking that burden off of athletic trainers and just making it standard policy. So I think that's one of the huge things um, to recognize here in, in the conversations. And, I, and so um, I think in these meetings, athletic trainers really are some of the biggest um, advocates and supporters that we rely on when we're having these conversations. And so um, the other thing is that it really takes a team approach. Um, and so, you know, I think the biggest thing that we've seen that um, results in success from these meetings is a collaboration between the State High School Athletic Association and the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee um, and, you know, the State Athletic Training Association. Because um, to really to make things happen, the State Association has to have that working relationship with the experts who are on the Sports Medicine Advisory Committee. And then those experts need to be pushing for all of these policies to be in place to really prioritize the health and safety of the athlete. And I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, that's that's truly what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that the, the health and safety of the athlete is prioritized and that, um, that I no longer have to have any more conversations or interviews through NCCSAR with a parent who just lost their kid because they didn't have a, a cold water immersion tub, right? So like a $150 tub um, is at place at every high school so that I no longer have to have those conversations. Um, that That's my ultimate goal at the end of the day, right? So, um, so I think I think the data that we bring can be really powerful when when we show some of the impact of some of these simple policies that are no cost, like key decolonization, emergency action planning. Um, and so uh, so I think those are really low hanging fruit and things that we we target first first off because because we know the impact can be so big. Yeah. So Pennsylvania has. Um... Uh, some really good heat acclimatization policies, whether the schools follow them or not, it's not up for debate. But um, I know back when I was in the high schools, you know, your two weeks, uh, one week pads only, and then kind of move up from there. Um, and that came about, uh, I'm assuming that was, you guys had a little bit of a hand in some of the, the information to, to get that across. Um, so I know a lot of our listeners are going to be kind of familiar with that kind of thing. Can we go like one step, let's go one step a little bit deeper on um, kind of heat illness and what we need to kind of watch out for and be prepared for this preseason? Because uh, 
right now, at least in Western PA, we're, we're starting to warm up. And I know camps start next week. Um, and uh, I mean, everybody's gearing up and, and things are going to get crazy over the next few days. Yeah. So um, the thing with heat acclimatization that I love is I think it's one of the most powerful things that we can do for athletes, not only from a safety perspective, but also from a performance perspective, which I think it's, it's like a, it's a completely underutilized, um, safe, um, legal ergogenic aid too, which a lot of athletes don't realize. Right. And so I feel like we should be using this so much more than we do, but, um, the policies for heat acclimatization ultimately, um, truly to give you a full history on those, um, uh, we, we, completely plagiarized the 2003 document from the NCAA when they started their heat acclimatization <laughs> program because it was so effective. And so um, when you see the, the 2009 NATA um, heat acclimatization document, that really just reflects what we saw in 2003 from the NCAA because again, um, they just saw a dramatic reduction in the number of heat stroke deaths uh, they were seeing during preseason. So the um, so the NCAA had a lot of success. Um, the 2009 document from NATA came out and we've seen number of states adopt it, adopt it since then. And now we actually have enough data to show that when a state has heat acclimatization in place, when the policy is mandated, um, there's a 55% reduction in, in heat illnesses in athletes, which is just yes. massive. Again, taking, imagine a 55% reduction in your heat illnesses that you're managing during the preseason, right? Yeah. So, um, so I think, uh, so I think from a, a policy development and historical perspective, that's been really, um, powerful. The other thing I was just highlighting about the performance end is, um, you know, uh, heat acclimatization can be huge in preparing athletes, um, for performance in the heat too, right? So, um, we actually just be, because of how powerful this is, we just hosted, um, the uh, women's national soccer team prior to going out to the um, Olympics in Tokyo because they wanted to prepare and go through a heat acclimatization process before they got to Tokyo because of how intense the heat was going oh, to be. Is, yeah. So so they did that purely, um, I mean, I don't think they were worried about heat illness as much as they were about the performance, right? Yeah. Um, but when you, when you do go through a heat acclimatization process, it's essentially like, it's very similar to doing um, altitude training or mm -hmm. um, blood doping essentially is what you're doing. Yeah. And it gives you a lot of the same benefits. So um, even in the cold, you'll see those benefits as well. So if you're competing in the heat or if you're competing in the cold, not only does it give you a performance edge, but it also obviously from an athletic training standpoint, it helps reduce your heat illness uh, load. <laughs> so now when you say heat and cold, um, I'm assuming, uh, Training for the cold would be similar to <clears throat> training for the heat, but just on the opposite side of the thermometer? Yeah, we don't see as many like um, dramatic issues in, in the cold, right? Your body can tolerate cold a lot easier than it can tolerate the, yeah. the heat. Um, but there are, there are some benefits just from being heat acclimatized when you're exercising in the cold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dr. Stearns, um, curious, have, from, from your research, do you see m much heat death or heat heat stroke, heat death, or from death from heat stroke, sorry, <laughs> I'll get it. Um, in other sports other than football, are we seeing it in a soccer? Are we seeing it in, you know, some of these other fall sports? Or is it more the equipment intensive piece 
Um, and even if it, you know, even if we're not seeing as much death from that, but, you know, talking about the performance piece, could you maybe just give a couple hints about, you know, what, what does a heat acclimatization for a soccer player look like? I know with, with football, with equipment, right. Where, you know, it's, it's volume, it's intensity, but it's also equipment, you know, the, the, the amount of equipment, but you know, a soccer player has shin guards and they always have to wear shin guards. So maybe talk on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So in general, from a, from a heat stroke perspective, um, when we're seeing fatalities, um, most of them are, yes, true, definitely in the football athlete. Um, there's many reasons why that could happen, but um, we certainly see them in other sports too. We've seen them in basketball. We've seen them in, in soccer, um, baseball. Um, so it, it, it really depends on, um, on what the athlete is doing. But yes, by and large, we see a lot in football simply because you have really large individuals most of right. the time. Um, <laughs> usually it's going to be linemen that we see that um, have heat stroke. Um, and again, yeah, they're working out in, in football equipment. Um, they're high intensity sport, right? Um, and uh, they're gonna be working out in um, the fall most of the time when you're transitioning back into sport and training and it's the hottest time of the year. Yep. And you don't know what these athletes have been doing up to this point. So they may or may not be trained. Um, and so, uh, so in terms of an acclimatization program, it takes about 10 to 14 days to become fully acclimatized, which is why you see most of the modifications happening in the first week. So when you look at the first week, you see almost 75% of all the, the heat illnesses that happen over that two week acclimatization period. Um, and so that's why you see all the modifications basically before day six. And then after day six, everything kind of goes into its normal preseason routine. Um, but I mean, football athletes, certainly they have their equipment that you gradually phase in over that time. And for all the other athletes, certainly acclimatization applies as well for soccer and all the other team sports, you know, cross country athletes as well. Um, it, it's it's more of a phasing in of the um, duration and exposure um, to to the heat, right? So you just don't want to do really intense exercise timed items um, prior to that because that those are scenarios that can set you up for for a heat illness prior to your body being ready to, to handle that heat load. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar to any injury, right? You know, you have to have that chronic workload built up or you're going to be at risk to pull something strain, sprain, whatever it may be. Um, you know, that slow, gradual passive overload as we talk about all the yeah. time, um, which is really need to take that to heart. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, go ahead, Phil. What are um what are some of the things that we should be looking out for during this acclimatization period? Uh, kind of tells that the uh, athletes might be having troubles. Um, trouble or um, that it's working. Which Both. Way? Okay. <laughs> so um, I'll I'll start with how to tell if it's working first, and then we can get into a troublesome realm. But um, so some of the benefits that you'll get with heat acclimatization are things like a decrease in heart rate. Um, you'll get a lower body temperature for a given intensity of exercise. Um, you'll have an increase in your plasma volume, which is kind of like, like that legal doping I was talking about. You right, can't really yeah. measure, but it, but it does happen. Um, uh, lowering your body temperature and increasing your sweat rate. Um, those are some of the large ones. Uh, you'll also do things like um, conserve your electrolytes, um, uh, specifically mostly through your, uh, the losses that you'd have through your sweat. But I think some of the easiest ways to track if you are acclimatizing to the heat is um, if you do a regular workout, say um, you are uh, 
the easiest example I can give is, is like a cross country athlete. So mm -hmm. say you go out for a run and you do that run at the exact same pace, the exact same route, the exact same environmental conditions. You do that like four times over the course of two weeks. And each time, if you track your, um, you track your heart rate, um, you track your sweat losses, right? If you just get a pre post body mass loss, um, and you can also track your body temperature too, but those would be the three easiest ways to do it. And what you would see is a lower heart rate. You would see an increase in your sweat losses, which is sounds backwards, but it's actually beneficial because the more you're sweating, the more opportunity you have to dissipate that heat that you're producing. Right. And then, um, you're also gonna have a lower body temperature too. So I, I, those are the easiest ways to just track over time. But of course, all those things have to be identical to, to truly measure the, the effect of it, right? But if you have a regular um, exercise that you can do, even if you're doing it inside while you're, you know, doing acclimatization on the outside, you know, in the heat, um, that'll, that'll be able to tell you if it's working. And then in terms of um, when you can run into trouble, so heat illness um, has a, a number of different conditions that you can suffer from, right? Some are not so severe, some um, like exertional heat stroke is, is it could be fatal, right? So um, you can have heat cramping, um, you can have heat syncope, you can have heat exhaustion. Um, and so, uh, so a lot of the signs and symptoms with those can overlap with other issues. But um, the by and large, what I'll say is, um, with at least, uh, I think the most important thing that everybody wants to know is how do I differentiate between like, is this a catastrophic and potentially catastrophic injury, or is this something that I don't have to worry about? They'll recover the rest will be okay. Um, so all of those, all of those conditions, except for exertional heat stroke, generally, if, if you give the athlete the right treatment protocol, they're going to recover. It's not going to be life-threatening. Right. Um, but exertional heat stroke, because their body temperature is so elevated, um, that will lead to organ failure and then ultimately death. So, so you need to get that person cooled immediately. And so the only thing that really differentiates exertional heat stroke from pretty much every other condition is a severe hyperthermia, meaning over 104 degrees Fahrenheit. Yep. Now, a lot of athletes are going to hover around like that 103 mark when they're exercising in the heat. That's completely normal. Hmm. We see a lot of elite runners finish, um, some pretty intense races and then they're at 104 um but they're okay um but really that that degree of hyperthermia is going to differentiate it from anything else and so that's why if if you have someone that and you're not sure if it's heat exhaustion or heat stroke you get them in the you get them in the cool environment start um you know giving them fluids allowing them to rest if if they're not improving in five minutes then then that's when you need to move to temperature assessment and see if you actually have a, a exertional heat stroke patient that's awesome. Um, I'm going to go back to the first part just because I'm a, I'm kind of a nerdy physiology guy, but, um, so basically we, our acclimatization, we're increasing this blood plasma, which is going to increase our ability to sweat, which also increasing the blood plasma is going to provide more blood to the heart, AKA needing less blood. So your heart rate's going to go lower. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I just, I love it. Uh, I'm, I'm into it. Um, <laughs> love physiology but anyway so i don't know if everybody else caught that but that's pretty cool um so <laughs> we can move past that but then um where were we at the so you said the five minutes if they're not getting better you throw them in the in the tub um we talked a little bit on the pre-call 
you know, about taking um, internal uh, temperature. Thoughts on that? How how pertinent is it to take t internal temperature? And thoughts on, you know, just if it's not legal in your state or you maybe talk a little bit about how we, you know, we, we had discussed offline about, um, you know, practice acts and, and if it's actually something we should be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is a super important conversation just from the heat stroke realm that we have all the time, right? Um, it's saving an exertional heat stroke victim is going to rely on um, like a few major, a few major key uh point of action, I would say. One is recognizing it, right? So you have to recognize it and, and you have, uh, you know, limited time. It's not as limited as a cardiac case, but you do need to act pretty swiftly. So you need to recognize that it's exertional heat stroke. So that's going to be a uh, body temperature over 104 with um, central nervous system dysfunction, which in my experience um, in treating all the heat stroke victims I've treated, um, most commonly is going to be confusion, combativeness, aggressiveness, um, just very disoriented. Um, very rarely are they ever unconscious yeah. um, or, um, or or some of the other things that you might hear. But that, that CNS dysfunction, it's just going to be that cognitive um, dysfunction, very similar to what you could see with, a, say, like a concussion, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, um, so you'll have those two factors. And again, most importantly, because CNS dysfunction is not um, <laughs> not very... Uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, Objective. It's not, yeah, it's not very focused to one condition, right? Um, yeah. And so, so that's why I said having a body temperature, having an accurate body temperature assessment is the only way to differentiate if you have um, someone that has exertional sickling, somebody ha that has um, um, head trauma, somebody that's experiencing uh, heat exhaustion. It's the only way to differentiate heat stroke from all of those other conditions. And so, um, unfortunately, uh, yes. So the only way to take a true body temperature assessment in somebody that's been exercising is using a rectal probe. Um, and that's because, uh, most of the other assessment devices will rely on skin or external means, which completely become invalid when you've been exercising, you have this unique blood flow to your skin and sweat and all these other things that confound those, those temperature assessments. We've tried, trust me, we've tried to see if there's an algorithm. We've tried to see uh, if there's any way to do it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there's not. I hope, you know, with technology in the future, there might be a way. But for now, unfortunately, yes, we just do a rectal temperature assessment. Um, and so, and I think, you know, the, the important thing to remind everybody is that when we talk um, about treating an exertional heat stroke victim, um, you know, assessing that body temperature, not only is that... Um, part of our educational competencies as athletic trainers. Um, it's also backed by the NATA position statements as best practices, and um, which is what we're technically adhering to and, um, and uh, not guaranteeing, but, um, but what we have, um, what we have uh, essentially committed to when, when we take, uh, when we renew our VOC, yeah. and our licensure and everything else, right? Is that we're applying those best practices. So I just like to remind everybody of that too. Um, and so, uh, so, the, so one, recognize, two, differentiate and get an accurate body temperature assessment. Um, and then three, cool the individual and sufficiently cool the individual, right? So the best way to save someone, and we've had 100% survival when this happens within the first 15 minutes, is putting them in a cold water immersion tub. It's the best way to cool someone down. 
you just need copious amounts of really cold water all over the body. And one of the things that I think has we've seen recently is that um, you know someone may throw somebody in a cold water immersion tub with or without a rectal temperature assessment, and um, an EMS asks so quickly that they come on site and they scoop the athlete and go to the hospital. And we've seen athletes that are still 106, 107, 108 when they hit the hospital. And by that point, um, you can do the math when um, they've collapsed on the field. You did your initial assessment on the field. EMS was called and they arrived. They do their assessment on the field and then they transport them to the hospital. You're way over 30 minutes at that point, which means that their survival is less than 50%. So, so that's why we really advocate one of the policies is cooling on on site first before transporting, assuming again, you have the appropriate equipment and, and people tr- who are trained to do that there. So those those three things are really important. And then if I can just do one more uh, spiel yeah. on, um, on uh, the, the accurate temperature assessment, I think the analogy um, with a cardiac arrest victim is really makes it a lot easier to understand the importance of having it and not just throwing them in a tub, right? So when you have a cardiac arrest victim, um, the way that you're going to confirm that is by putting the AED pads on that victim, right? You're confirming that they don't have a rhythm, okay? Um, or that they they have hopefully a shockable rhythm. Um, and so you put those AED pads on and then uh, you deliver the shocks. That's your treatment, right? Um, now with a heat stroke victim, you're going to do your body temperature assessment, which is essentially like those AED pads. And that will confirm your diagnosis. And then you're going to put them in a cold water immersion tub and cool them till they're down to 102, right? So not only are you confirming your diagnosis with the AED pads and the rectal temp, but then you're treating the victim sufficiently based on feedback that you get from, from your treatment. So you're going to shock them until you get that rhythm back, or you're going to cool them until you get them to 102. You don't remove them. You would never remove AED pads until you had that rhythm back. And you would never remove them from a cold water immersion tub until you got them cool enough. The only way to do that is to confirm that their body temperature is down to 102, which is um, just why it's so vital that we have that that measurement. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is super important. Super important. Phil, you got some questions? Uh, it was dead. My next question was just a temperature assessment, and you rocked that. Yeah. So a couple questions. Um, is there an ideal temperature for the cold mer- water immersion? So the colder, the better. But okay. generally, we normally keep it between like 40 and 50 degrees. Okay. Um, so my best recommendation is have like a 150-gallon tub, like stock tank from an agricultural feed store. Those work really well. They're durable. They'll, they'll last forever. You buy it once, you're good. Um, and that'll fit any athlete that you could have, any size okay. athlete. Um, how, how close to the field do you recommend? Yeah. So if, if you have transport, you know, um, within five minutes of the field, it's fine to kind of put it in a central location if you're trying to address multiple teams and sports that are going on, um, as long as you can transport them to it. Fill it halfway and then have buckets of ice next to it. So if you do have to fill it at the time that you, you need to use it, you can pour the ice in and that will guarantee that you have the coldest water possible. Um and um, you made me think of one other thing there, the cold water immersion tub. Um, yeah, I lost it. Yeah. Uh, maybe it'll come back. So um, to um, to kind of just uh, pony off the uh, cold immersion tub, um, 
I know in the past I've I've been at schools where we don't have one and we don't have access to one, whether it's budgetary or physical limitations, where you know they, they practice on a different field every day and to move it around and around kind of is kind of um, impractical. I carried around a tarp and a 10 gallon of ice water. And the, the plan was, all right, guys, everybody grab part of the tarp. We put the athlete in the tarp and we just keep dousing them with water. And it kind of creates like a little pond, little puddle there. And, you know, I'm not sure how effective that is, but it's better than nothing. It was better than nothing, in my opinion, at the time. What are, what are your thoughts on kind of MacGyvering it like that? Yeah, I love that. You were ahead of your time because we now have data behind that. And cool. it, is, it is an effective method. We call it the taco method. I was going right? to say it's the taco <laughs> method, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's taco actually stands for tarp assisted cooling, but it does also describe kind of the, what it looks I like when you're in the process. Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and we've done, it, you know, it's not quite as fast as doing cold water immersion, but it does give you sufficient cooling rates. So the things I love about the tarp assisted cooling is one, it is cheap, right? And two, and amazingly, that what it has above um, a cold water immersion tub is it's um, transportable. So, you know, if you're going off site to a location and you're not sure what resources you're going to have there, um, then this is something that you can bring with you to ensure that you're going to be able to, you know, address somebody that might have an exertional heat stroke. And the one other thing I was going to say about um, just cooling modalities and options is um, when we talk about cold water immersion, we're not expecting people to have to do that every um, single practice of, of the year, right? So within reason, um, you know, having it set up during um, the, the preseason period for sure, during yep. probably, I would, I would probably say for, for the first two to three weeks yep. uh, of practice and then having it readily available. So if you did need to set it up, you could set it up. The other good way to do it is um, if you have a wet bulb globe temperature device and you have on-site weather monitoring capabilities, um, having a policy where you have the tub set up based on your weather conditions, because mm-hmm. we know, especially, um, you know, based on different regions within the U.S., different temperatures are going to naturally have uh, an increased rate in heat stroke incidences. So we know when we're more likely to see heat illness based on just the environmental te- temperatures too, not just the time of year, the the time point in the the training season, but also just because of the environmental conditions. So having a policy where you're not setting it up every single day, right? Um, yeah. that, that's not what we're not, that's, that's not what the expectation would be, but just having it available if you need it and then having it set up during those, those really focused periods where we just know you're gonna see a lot of heat on this, yeah. yeah. And you said the no, like temperatures, the temperatures are regional based, kind of mm-hmm. like the, just the general population is gonna be acclimatized to a certain kind of heat and humidity and then when it goes beyond is there a metric or anywhere to find that data so we can make some informed decisions yeah so it's it's out there it's available on our website i know other organizations have adopted it so like new jersey is using it you can probably find it in their um handbook um a lot of other states like florida too um and uh even u.s soccer has adopted them they have a great um informational uh packet on it too and so um, there's three different zones and regions that um, we worked closely with um, Dr. Grunstein out of Georgia. Um, he's a climatologist. So we went and, and collaborated with him. And, um, and so based on heat illness information that we have, um, specifically from Georgia, and also regional weather patterns, which typical for the area, 
Um, basically, he took those two uh, metrics and uh, we were able to look at when risk is, uh, is highest, right? And then provided that incremental changes and modifications to practice and ultimately if practice needed to be canceled, what, at what level that is. Um, and then applied that to the rest of the, the, the states and the zones and the different regions within the US. So we knew that weather modifications had to be regionalized. It had to be specific to the region and what's typical for that region. And we had to base it on data that we knew for true heat illness data. And so, and so that's, and that, that's what we did with, with a paper that we worked on with Dr. Grunstein. It just yeah. reminds me of uh, when I used to, um, I started grad school in Tennessee and the first week it was like, I don't know, like 105 degrees with 98% humidity. And I'm like, okay, cool. So we're canceling practice. We're we going in the gym. And they were like, no, this is like every day here. I'm just, and like, I'm drenched in, in half out of it. And it's just like, oh man. Yeah. You never well, did acclimatize to that though. That's something to think about though too, right? Like, if, if you're at a college athlete and you're from Maine and you're yep. going down to Florida, you're not going to be acclimatized as much as somebody who's from, from Florida, right? And vice versa. Um, so that's definitely something to think about with your athletes, especially if you're in a college setting. Yeah, definitely. And that's, again, another component that heat acclimatization helps. But yep. yeah, definitely. I mean, we've seen a lot of college athletes get into trouble for that very reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How about, um, I think we touched on a lot of it, but anything you want to touch on with prevention? Um, you know, obviously acclimatization and some of the other techniques we talked about, but anything else that, that would be helpful for, for our athletes? So from a heat perspective, the biggest things you can do are um, being fit. So- um... <laughs> I love you. <laughs> my athletes all day, every day. So what'd you do for the last six weeks? Uh, yeah, well, that's fine. <laughs> yep, yep. So fitness is like, and, and just general aerobic, like conditioning um, and fitness, that is is almost like cheating the first step in the heat acclimatization process because yeah. you get a lot of the same benefits, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. And so um, so fitness is, is a huge one. And then your relative intensity, especially if you're in a team dynamic where some of the protocols and conditioning sessions are going to kind of be um, just a blanket approach. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's going to be different intensities for everybody trying to accomplish that. So the more fit you are, the better off you're going to be. Um, and then on top of that, uh, heat acclimatization, right? We talked a lot about that, but that is going to give you so many benefits for, for coping with heat stress. So heat acclimatization and fitness are probably top two items that somebody can personally address themselves. Um, third one, everybody's going to know this, but hydration status, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and the one thing I'll say is like with heat stroke specifically, there's not one factor that, that is, um, that has to be present or solely responsible for heat stroke. We find that it's multifactorial. A lot of the time we find a lot of people can be perfectly hydrated and, and they'll get heat stroke. Right. right. And, th and that's probably because they're really fit and they're perfectly hydrated. So they feel great and they're pushing themselves really hard. And that's when they, that's when they hit that really hyperthermic level. But hydration, definitely. If you become um, more than 2% dehydrated, then that's when you start to see the physiological impact. Um, most concerningly, uh, like initially, you're gonna see like a performance, but then as you gradually become more and more dehydrated, certainly it's gonna be more and more concerning from a health per perspective, right? As you yeah. reach the three, four, 5% realm, 
that's going to be really dangerous um, because for every about 1% body mass you lose, your body temperature is going to go up almost a half degree Fahrenheit. So say you're wow. 2, 2%, you're going to be one full degree hotter than you were if you were you hydrated. And then again, you can see if you multiply that out, if you're 4% dehydrated, you're two degrees hotter. Yeah. So when you're, you could be 102 and instead you're 104 and on the verge of heat stroke. Right. So I think those are the best factors that you can control that athletes have within their capabilities. There's a lot of good um, sweat rate calculators online. Sweat rate's really individualized. So knowing your hydration needs is really important so that you don't under or overdo it because you can overdo it as well. Yeah. Um, and so so having a, a, a um, idea of what your hydration needs are means that you're going to appropriately replace your fluids and minimize those fluid losses. Right. And so so there's a lot of good um, sweat rate calculators online um, mm. that can help you figure that out and what your needs are. Um, so those those three things, the, the fitness, heat acclimatization, um, and hydration status would be the three prevention things that I think people can do. Now there's going to be other things that an institution or a school can do like weather modifications, right? Yeah. So having practice yeah. modifications based on extreme weather conditions, that's going to be really important too. Um, and that'll incorporate equipment as well. Yeah. Love it. That, th those are, that was great. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> uh, Becca, did, um, did any of your research, uh, look into pharmaceuticals and how um, heat tolerance is affected by that and how because um, I know a lot of the um, uh, the pharmaceuticals used for treating depression and anxiety that a lot of our athletes are on can affect uh, body temperature regulation. Yeah, so this is definitely an emerging area that we're looking into. Great question. Um, we know that a lot of um, there are some medications that will impact heat tolerance, no doubt. I'll just say that, right? Um, so I think it's always important to to make sure that athletes are listing those whenever they're doing their pre-participation exam form and and that we're aware of them. Ultimately, I think um, for the most part, they'll 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 still have the same benefits of fitness and heat acclimatization and all those other things that go into it. But um, it could just place them slightly more at risk, right? For for being hyperthermic. But yeah, so. ADHD medications um, we've seen. Um, there's um, this thought that statins might also be uh, a component um, and any sort of, um, any sort of, yeah, any sort of medication that like you were saying that can help, um, that may fight some of these um, like depression related um, conditions can also can also play a part. So I think medications are important. Um, the one thing I'll say when we talk prevention or predisposing factors is, especially when we're talking heat illness, it's really important to think about prevention and also survival as two different things. Okay. So, um, so prevention is really important because you can do a lot to prevent a heat illness, but there's so many factors that can contribute and there's so many factors out there that are outside of either the athlete's control or like say the medical provider's control. Like if an athlete really wants to push themselves and they're pushing for a starting spot on the team, they're not gonna wanna tell you that they're sick. They're not gonna tell you that they're feeling awful. They're gonna wanna get out on the field. They're gonna push themselves really hard. And that's a perfect scenario for a heat stroke. So while we can do, and we can have all the best policies in place, there's still going to be a chance and a risk and all these other factors that could contribute to somebody having a heat stroke. So prevention is great. 
and I'm not trying to downplay that, but I think it needs to be thought of as separate from survival of a heat stroke. Because a lot of the times what we hear when somebody dies from heat stroke is, oh, they weren't hydrated enough, or they were on these medications, or um, this and that, or, or something went into it that caused them to have a heat stroke. But what we know is that when you cool someone with cold water immersion within the first 15 minutes, we've had 100% survival. And I say that because that's a data set that we've done out of the Falmouth Road Race, which takes place, it's taking place in a couple of weeks right now. Um, it takes place every year in August on Cape Cod. Um, and it's a seven mile road race and it's notorious for having the highest incidence of exertional heat stroke um, that we know of. They average about 20 to 30 heat stroke victims every year there. And so that's why we go and work that event every single year. <laughs> it is the best experience. If you want to ever be experienced in heat stroke, it's the best, it's the best way to get experience. Um, but they've had a hundred percent survival for all those people that they've treated in the medical tent. And that's simply because essentially the medical tent is focused, not solely, but very focused on um, treating those exertional heat stroke victims. And they have about 20 to 30 tubs set up, ready to go um, for those heat stroke victims. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Crazy. Um, I think that's a great way to kind of wrap up the, the bulk of the show. We'll do our lightning round, but you know, just to recap, you know, it's it really comes down to treatment, right? Like, yeah, we can talk about prevention. We can talk about acclimatization. But when it comes down to it, if things go awry, get them in this cold tub, have access to that cold tub, get them in the cold tub and keep them there until their body temperatures down to that 102. Yeah, yeah I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> you said it much better. I'm just reading <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, so the lightning it. round. Um, these are just quick, fun questions. You can go as detailed or as brief as you would like. But if you're not already in it, what is your dream job? Yeah, and this is a hard one. I have no idea what to tell you for this because uh, it's really hard. I, I love what I do right now so much. Um, I think it's a great blend of like my athletic training, um, you know, background, um, my passion for athletes and sports and working with individuals and also like my love for research too. Um, so if I wasn't doing this job, um, I, it's, it's really hard for me to think of what I would be doing. Um, I, I, you know, I, it's, it's very hard. I definitely think I would be working with people and, um, and trying to do something in some way to, uh, to work and help. Um, and so, uh, so I don't know exactly what that is, unfortunately, but I think it's a good thing if I, if I can't come up with something better. We, we yeah. always like that answer that you're in the job that you love, right? We, yeah. We, we put that in there hoping to feel like, I don't even know what we were hoping for, but almost everybody says, yeah, it's the job I'm in now, which is great that we have that kind of commitment to our, our job. So, all right. That being said, what do you do for fun? So, um, that's great. So I have two little ones that keep me busy, two and four year old uh -huh. girls. So, uh, so that occupies a lot of my time right now, but, um, it's, it's, uh, such a privilege and a joy to have them in my life. And so um, ever grateful for family. And um, but for fun, I would say in the time I do have, uh, I um, historically I'm a runner. So I ran all through high school. I also ran in college. And so I continued that running marathons. Um, it's been oh, a wow, little, nice. you know, downtime now um, with the kids and COVID. But um, hopefully I'm, I'm planning on getting back to it. I've done all the U.S. major marathons. And so 
if I wanted to um, complete all the, the world majors, I have a few more races to run. So hopefully that would be my goal there. Um, I also awesome. just love, um, you know, hiking, being outdoors, being yeah. in the water. Um, I have a, a hobby, I will say lightly in front of Phil uh, for photography. I like photos, <laughs> but- best, um, best way to get into it, do it. <laughs> it's so much fun. But mostly because I just enjoy capturing life and family, so yeah. Great answer. My turn? I think so. All right. What inspires you? Yeah, so big questions here. Nice nice work, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> they can go so, deep. Um, so, uh, I mean, I just... Um, it's really hard. I mean, I work for a nonprofit, right? And um, I uh, every day I'm just advocating for health and safety of athletes and that uh, we make sure that every athlete makes it home at the end of the day and that every parent has that um, has that assurance that that they're going to be able to pick their kid up. Right. And so um, I think in my line of work, I love when we go to a state and we're working with all these stakeholders and we see these people that latch on to this like passion and mission and goal. And they become advocates for it themselves and they become their own like, like leader within their, their world of, of you know, health and safety for sport. So I love seeing um, these people just rise up and join us in this um, really positive like movement of just you know, trying to help um, you know, the health and safety of athletes. So, so I love seeing that in, in people you know, overcoming um, you know, those, those ad that those adversities and finding finding a way path forward right so yeah. so i love those stories yeah yeah helping the little guy mm -hmm. yeah. so dr what does being an athletic trainer mean to you another good one um so i mean certainly athletic training is in my background it's my history i worked the high school level um I've also worked numerous mass medical events. You know, we go to the Falmouth Road Race every year. Um, and so I think um, athletic training is just such a unique profession in that, um, in that we really, we, we get to serve the athletes every day and we get to see them grow from that perspective. And you get that really close-knit um, relationship that, uh, that, that I don't know is available to every other profession, right? Like we get to grow and see the athletes on a daily basis. So, um, so I, yeah, I don't know if I can really speak much more to it than that. <laughs> um, it's yeah. such a big question. I just love the athletic training profession in general. I think another just experience that I've had being in like the world we work in is that um, I think our profession is just so unique in that um, everybody, um, it, it's its own network, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's always, you know, who do you like, oh, you know so-and-so and you know so-and-so and this person could connect you with this person. Like the athletic training network is just so powerful and crazy. So um, if you can reach out to another athletic trainer and, and even if you don't know them, the fact that you're an athletic trainer um, just automatically gives you this support and bond um, that, can, that can make amazing things happen. And so um, that's just what I love about the athletic training profession in general. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. that uh, I, I like that about the athletic training as well. Um, you know, that, it's always fun. Everybody knows everybody. Um, but seriously, 
Yeah, Dr. Stearns, this has been absolutely amazing. Um, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your expertise with us. Uh, hopefully, you know, this information will help other athletic trainers and other states and other, um, you know, areas of the country to, to hopefully push policies ahead and at least be at the at minimum be ready for preseason. Right. Um, so so a lot of this information was super valuable. Uh, I'm going to have a ton of links for this show, um, gave yeah. us a ton of resources. So I'm going to try to link all that to the show so people can go out and read um, the information that you've provided. Um, but yeah, so if viewers do have any questions for you specifically, is there any way they can reach out to you and ask? Yeah, so my email is in the public domain there, so anybody can can pester me if they'd like to. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but yeah, it's just my Yukon email, so feel free to put okay. that in the link if you'd like. Um, yep, I'll also say I'm, um, one thing I forgot to mention, I did just want to point it out. Um, huh? We are looking at um, coming to visit Pennsylvania in October for our Tufts initiative, right? So I'm Perfect. very excited um, that we will be there in October with a lot of stakeholders in, in Pennsylvania trying to work on um, health and safety policies. So just, uh, you know, just giving everyone that heads up. We're excited to come and be there. I'm excited to be back in my alma mater state of Pennsylvania and um, get to see some old friends and, and talk health and safety. Perfect. Perfect. Dr. Stearns, thank you again. And I need to say a big thank you to Rothman Orthopedics for sponsoring this episode. And to our listeners, please uh, like, subscribe, email, tweet, post, comment, DM, whatever it is, do it. Until next time, I'm Adam Richmond. And I'm Philip Hensler. And this was the Pats Podcast.